All right. In this week's moment of gratitude, a thank you to Ryan for her review of the book, Chasing the Swallowed Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. She shares that this is by far one of the best resources for the SLP, either new or experienced. Michelle brings to light evidence-based practice and practical case studies to inform and encourage the SLP. This book is engaging and brilliant. Michelle does a wonderful job presenting the information in a way that that transcends the voice of stuffy superiority, I'm giggling, and feels like a warm hug, cup of good coffee, and chatting with a friend. If you are a professor, make this a book in your coursework for your students. I wish I had had it. If you're a nerd and want to know more, this book is for you. If you are new or experienced in the field of PFD and want to advocate and facilitate IPP and evidence-based practice, this book is for you. If you're weary and tired and need a spark of joy, humor, and and knowledge to reignite your passion for kiddos who need you. This book is for you. Bottom line, y'all read this book. And if reading is not your jam, or even if it is, listen to the podcast by Michelle and Aaron, First Bite. You will leave feeling encouraged, challenged, and delighted. So Ryan, thank you for the book review. Folks, if you're listening, remember that Chasing the Swallow actually counts for one point three, five ASHA CEUs with speechtherapypd.com. Basically, that's 13 and a half hours of continuing education. So log on to Amazon and use kind words and know that we're grateful. Also, oh my God, it's Dr. Aaron Riedel. It's like two for two. Also, this is my 40th birthday episode. So happy birthday to me. We got Dr. Aaron Riedel after Dr. Joan Arvidsson. Holy cats. What a great month. (laughs) Enjoy. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, 
pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody. This is a early birthday present to myself. So in case you don't know it, March 10th, I am turning 40, which is just baloney because I still have pimples, I have gray hair, and I have wrinkles. So my body's got to pick a struggle because it can't do all three. But we're just going to gloss over the pimple part because at least pimple products have improved in the last 40 years and move on to how we're celebrating. And we are celebrating by having today's guest. She is none other than Erin Riedel Sizemore, PhD, CCC, SLP, an associate professor and department chairperson in the speech language and hearing sciences department at Mount St. Joseph University, amongst like all of the other accolades that she has. But this is what's cool. A lifetime ago, when I felt like a super green PFD clinician, I sat in a lecture and it was her lecture. And somebody asked you in the lecture, what about sippy cups? Shouldn't we be avoiding them because of craniofacial structural changes and blah, 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 blah. And went on like this super big thing. And you started laughing and you said, you're going to walk out the door and the parents are going to give them the cup because otherwise the kid's going to make a mess. So just make it better with what they have. And it was so off the cuff, honest, raw parenting advice. And like, I didn't have kids at the time. And I was like, parents actually do that. And then I became a mom and there is no way in hell I'm going to give my toddler children an open mouth cup in the backseat of a car or in my house because Mr. Mungo and his infinite wisdom built our house with white carpets. And I thought that was the most brilliant, sagest, functional advice. And it was profound and it stuck with me that we have to make what we do work for the families. And that was what you were driving at. And there's so much beauty in that. So the fact that you're sharing my birthday with me, like, thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. And um, happy birthday. I would sing, but that would scare everyone away. (laughs) Trust me, by now the children have done it nonstop in English and in Mandarin. Yes. So we are, we are um, (laughs) Goldensky. But thank you. But hi. So you're like a powerhouse in the world of PFD and with so much respect. But can you take us back to the beginning? Like, how did you decide to be an SLP to begin with? I want to go like way, way back. (laughs) Sure. So interestingly, I started out college and I was pre-med and I kind of both some of the chemistry as well as some of just looking at my life and the things I wanted in my life. I was like, I don't really know that this is going to be the right path for me. And I was kind of on the fence between special education and speech pathology. I had a neighbor who was diagnosed with autism long before anyone knew what autism was. Her mom was a early childhood educator and she was noticing all these challenges in her daughter and kept taking her to different professionals who kept telling her, and the terminology at the time was that she was mentally retarded, or what we would now say is cognitively impaired. And her mom just kept saying, I know she's not, she has things like her mom could say, she has object permanence, like her mom could pick up these cognitive markers that other people weren't picking up. And so her family was just amazing. 
And we got to, as an eighth grader, I got to kind of work with her and learn from the family and learn about language. But then I also had a sister who had a speech sound disorder, a very severe speech sound disorder, and she went to speech therapy. And so when I was kind of trying to weigh special ed or speech, because I was so interested in these, particularly at the time in autism, I had a a neighbor or a friend, a family friend who was a special educator. And she said, you know, my advice to you would be to go into speech pathology. She said, you have so many career options. You know, you can work with kids, you can work with adults, you can work in a school. And she's like, it's just a really wise career decision. And so I kind of started learning more and more. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely for me. And I I just, sophomore year of college, fell in love with it. And I'm um, just as passionate today as I was at the very beginning about the profession. Awesome. Okay. So I got into this because my youngest brother was born with a cleft lip, actually. It wasn't in his palate. Also, my stepmom got electrocuted when she was pregnant with him. Yeah, she hit the, the she was replacing the toggle switch on like a electrical outlet, which I swear is why my husband has everything on the little bzzz up and down. Y'all can't see it, but I'm like signing the little thing that goes up and down that like grades the lights because he's an electrical engineer. We got to be bougie. But like... <laughs> I told him I wanted the clap on, clap off. And he was like, no, <laughs> we have sons. That was a really wise decision. But she, when she was electrocuted, he was born with dysarthria. Like he had some unique things. I mean, you wouldn't know it now. The guy six, four has a degree in physics and is like brilliant, but he didn't talk till he was four and change. And I was in seventh grade the first time he could say his name. Because, well, there's a big age gap between us. I'm, again, the 40-year-old and the babies are in their 20s. So, like, go team. Not my babies, my siblings. But everybody's like, I thought she only had a goose and a bear. No, I'm just kidding. But it was it was profound how at that window you can, like, find your calling. But, like, I thought I was going to work, you know, go in, got to college. was like, oh, I'm just going to work with speech sound disorders. This is great. And then I took my first dysphagia class and was like, I want all of the swallowing. Like this is, this is my thing. And it was calling to me. So is that, how did that happen? Like, how did you transition from there to like the tiny humans and swallowing? Yeah. Similar kind of story. So I went to graduate school at Emerson in Boston and I went there specifically because they had like a great autism program. They had connections to some of the different schools in in Boston and I took my first dysphagia class and I, we, I was super fortunate at the time, you know, this is 20, a little over 20 years ago, but my <laughs> class was co-taught by an adult speech therapist and a pediatric speech therapist who specialized in pediatric feeding. That's amazing. Yeah. And she had a program through Deirdre Mulcahy Patch. If she's out there listening, shout out to her because she literally is who convinced me. Like she didn't convince me. She didn't, you know, she didn't have to like work very hard. I was just like, this is amazing. And this is what I want to do. And I was fortunate to get to do the feeding programs through Emerson and get to learn. And so it was, I started doing it and I was like, yes, this is definitely what I, what I want to do. And really where I kind of put my, my blinders on and and started heading. So yeah, same. So I didn't start with peds until we moved to South Carolina. So I worked as a speech teacher in Virginia public schools back as like a teacher, right? Uh, a lifetime ago with a bachelor's, then got my master's from James Madison and did my CF in a hospital where I was the first full-time SLP. So my CF supervisor showed up. She handed me the Mary Kay thing. So I had to order Mary Kay and then she would sign off on my documents. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was a long time ago. And then we would, you know, transition over to like, you know, whatever it was that was, but like they never had a full-time SLP. So I did inpatient med surge ICU with adults, worked set up oncology team, then transitioned to the outpatient clinic in the afternoon, but it was still predominantly adults. And we would have like some children, but I was the only SLP for 45 miles. So like it was, you caught whatever you caught because it was, it was rural, right? Rural is an understatement, but it was the kitchens at the cafeteria at the hospital. They had fried chicken Wednesday and like everybody in the community came to the hospital. And I was, I pointed out one time the irony of the high cholesterol, high fat, and this was frowned upon. And then they were like, just be quiet and eat your chicken. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> So then we moved to South Carolina and I ended up getting into early intervention, working with kids. And at first I was overwhelmed and I hated it, but it ended up being my passion, right? Like this is where I'm supposed to be is in the world of EI, right? And I started getting one PFD kid after another PFD kid. It was before we had the term PFD. It was just peds dysphagia, right? Or picky eater or behavioral. And I realized I don't know what I'm doing, but they're sending me feeding tube kids and this was not covered. And so that's when I started taking like every course I could get my hand on it, which is how I came across your course, your presentation. I think it was at Shab. I think I'd gone back to Virginia for like a conference. It was either at Shab or at Skisha. I can't remember which state I was in, but I was, it was profound. But the information that we were taught 10, 15, 20 years ago versus what is out now is so vastly different. So folks, if you're listening and you took a class 10 or 15 years ago, probably willing to bet that you took a class focusing on non-speech oral motor exercises and stretching of the mouth and vibrating of a face, please know that science has changed and research has changed. And now we are better equipped with more interprofessional practice opportunities and strategies and interventions that weren't around then, which is why we continue with continuing education, why we don't stay stagnant, right? Let's go back down memory lane to once upon a time when we thought we knew what was best practice and how has this changed? (laughs) So I remember one of the things that was really interesting for me when I started my doctoral program was trying to find articles to justify or to describe evidence-based intervention. And it was really hard. Like there were probably six articles and I could probably still name four of them. You know, they were just kind of burned in my head. But then I, it was, it, what was interesting and then enlightening and then purely frightening from my perspective was all the evidence, all of the published evidence I could find, particularly for what at the time we were calling the behavioral feeders was in the psychology literature. And I remember like one time there was like, there's a swallow induction that you can use to really help kids. And I was like, oh, this sounds amazing, right? Like, how do I help children learn how to swallow? And it was essentially an article talking about triggering the gag reflex to get children to swallow. I remember like as a speech therapist, right? Like I'm horrified, like where is X, Y, and Z? Like all of these pieces of this process that we're missing. And so we did talk about that a lot about behavior and kind of the people used to be failure to thrive. Some of it still when I started was failure to thrive versus organic failure to thrive and non-organic failure to thrive. And you know, kids just didn't want to eat and they were choosing to be naughty. And I was super fortunate when I was at Cincinnati Children's to work with Kathy Berkla, who was a psychologist who specialized in feeding. And she just really was amazing about 
this isn't a choice. This is what you are seeing is what is the child is having difficulty with. And we have to figure out what's going on and what's contributing to that to help understand them. And and now to go to having its own diagnostic criteria in PFD, I mean, that's just coming cross country really in 15 years or so to really have a true understanding of the underlying etiology and not just kids are being naughty or bad or willful. Yes. It's sad in many ways that it took that long, but I think it's also a testament to the people who work with these kids and know these kids the best and being able to really kind of advocate and say, look, there's something going on here. It's our job to figure it out. They're too, they're too little to, you know, have the capacity or the means tell us these things. We have to figure out what's driving, what's going on with these poor kids and figure out how to fix it. So we're a year and a half into having the PFD diagnostic criterion, right? So folks, if you're new to PFD or you're, you haven't had the exposure yet, pediatric feeding disorder is the new ICD-10 code that we have because of the significant body and years of work of Feeding Matters, which is international nonprofit founded by a mother of children with a PFD back in the day before it was PFD. And pediatric feeding disorder is made up of a um, medical etiology or etiologies, the child's feeding skill, psychosocial indicators, but not just psychosocial for the child, but also to take into account the psychosocial stress of the caregivers that are involved, as well as their nutritional status, right? So we have the four domains and each one of those can have its own level of need within the four domains or four aspects of a pediatric feeding disorder. And codes are R63.32 for a chronic and R63.31 for acute, if memory is correct, but like numbers are hard. So like maybe fact check me on the numbers, but I know it's R63.31 or two. Anyways, even though we are a year and a half into having this ICD-10 code, I literally had a caregiver that I had to prep for last week because I knew that they were going to the GI doctor, right? And I knew the GI was going to say, and technically they're a foster parent, I knew the GI was going to tell them this is behavioral. So this child's case study, which like perfectly transitions into what we're going to talk about big picture. This little one is in foster care because he tested positive for opioids after birth. He has neonatal abstinence syndrome, ETOH exposure in utero. And I picked him up after he had had a feeding tube because of the breakdown in foster care systems across differing state lines, access to comprehensive medical records is um, basically nil, right? So all I know is I have a child that comes to me with a feeding tube with known um, withdrawals, and he is seven months old at the time that we start rendering services, and he's on thickened liquids. And that's all that we know, right? If they try to alter his feeds, the volume of his feeds, even by the slightest amount, he starts projectile vomiting, right? This is this is not behavior. And what the GI told him, and we've been at therapy, child-led um, therapy for months, and he is willing to touch and play. But as soon as we bring in the food to our mouth, he either breaks out in a rash Ding, ding, ding. Um, we ha already have a baseline of eczema. If we do anything within the latex food group family, like he breaks out in like hive rashes. Um, and so we've eliminated that. But trying to get this child to the allergist to have verbal consent given by current biological caregivers for assessments or for endoscopies, there's all of these unique variables that are prohibiting 
access to interprofessional practice. But I saw all these signs and symptoms and I braced the family. You're going to have to advocate for this child because GI is going to tell you this is behavioral in the now 11-month-old. And here's the deal. 11-month-olds, they're not purposely electing to projectile vomit, right? This is not a behavior-based feeding disorder. This is a medical etiology. I suspect etiologies are as of yet undiagnosed. But yet here we are 18 months into an interprofessionally practice driven ICD-10 code that we're going to have myths abound and all to the detriment of this child who is not electing to vomit every which way, right? This is also, he is so stinking cute. And oh my God, oh my God. I just, he's got the juiciest little thighs. Like I love, I love fat thighs. Like they're just, (laughs) I will pinch them, not meanly, but just like, (laughs) But I say that because this is what we're seeing. And I don't know, this might be philosophical, but how do we move away from this misinformation of behavioral-based feeding disorders? What, what, What have you seen happen and where do we go? So that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) AA, we're screwed, but continue. Thank you. (laughs) No, no, no. I think one of the things that comes to my mind, and this is, you know, maybe not where you were going with this question, but I'm going to pull it in here. I was um, super fortunate when I was at Children's to do a fellowship in quality improvement and um, implementation science. And one of the things that I was fortunate to learn about was that there's actually a science about how you change behavior or how you change practice. And one of the um, one of the pieces of that or one of the successful strategies is something called change agents. And those change agents come from Um, people who advocate and, you know, kind of a a classic, very classic example of this is in the 80s when AIDS was first, um, first discovered and people were first talking about it. And they were trying to get the word out to help people protect themselves and understand the disorder. They had, um, instead of like using, you know, doctors coming into communities, particularly in San Francisco, they actually had bartenders and People who, there was a lot of bartenders, a lot of kind of social leaders, for lack of a better word. Like, who do you talk to in your neighborhood? You know, who do you, um, you know, at churches, different reverends or different pieces of people that like people naturally flock to. So they weren't like what we would consider to be content experts. They were people who were well connected to the community. And I think, and and so when you, when you want to change something, it's not like a top-down model. It's take people who are in this and infuse them with the knowledge and the passion to go forward and and make the change. And I think, you know, like talking about this, like just getting the word out and helping speech therapists who are working with physicians or other um, professions who are struggling to kind of adopt something new because it's hard, like making it easy for them in terms of being a change agent and advocate and, you know, kind of sometimes laying things out for people in ways that we're not used to having that conversation, right? Like, you're a GI physician, you should understand the diagnostic codes that are tied to GI practice. But sometimes instead of saying like, hey, it's like, you know, the nice little, here's a report where I, here's how I see him fitting this. What do you see that's different about this or some of those things? And sometimes it's hard to get even your foot in the door that way. But having these little pieces of knowledge that kind of go through um, different channels to get them exposed in different ways. And, and there are people we know to like, there are people who, if you guys have ever read 
um, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, the tipping point. And and some of that work comes from implementation science. It actually comes from um, Everett Rogers, who was the kind of grandfather of implementation science. You know, he actually kind of coined some of those terms, like the early adopters and the laggards and those people. So recognizing that people are going to be all along a continuum. But if we don't continue to advocate, and like you were saying, like teaching families or working with families to say like, hey, you know, something, just so you know, here's some talking points for this and kind of prepping them and then following up. If if we, and I say we as speech therapists, because I feel like we tend to come to the table with a lot of passion and advocacy for our patients, particularly our feeding kiddos, because like you said, we know how it impacts the family too. Yes. And so being able to, you know, just a little here and there, drop some knowledge and and kind of um, kind of using our our ability to read um, situations and nonverbal skills and people's feedback to what's appropriate for me to drop on you right now versus like you know not that I've ever done this but like an angry like how do you not know this kind of an email type of a thing um, but I think that that often has it's more persuasive in the long run because people are then open to what we're saying versus like more power. And, you know, some people, you know, you can get into this whole implementation science thing is always fascinating to me. It's just super interesting. But talking about, you know, how do we make things easy for them? How do we make the um, the risk of failure around it very low? You know, it's just these kind of low, these low stakes over and over and over again versus, you know, some emotional quick response to them. And but I think, so kind of back to your original question, sorry, that was very long-winded. That's what happens sometimes when you let me go. But knowing that we have to be the change agents to get this information out there and realize that that's, that's part of the advocacy that we're called to do. That's part of our professional responsibility is to advocate for our profession and our patients. And, you know, really remembering that this is this is part of what we do. We are here to advocate for, we're here to, to help them understand that, um, I think is a powerful way, a grassroots way to start seeing some of that change. Um, because you can, you know, send a flyer. I mean, how many pieces of mail do you get every day? And you kind of, yeah, and you drop them in. But if somebody, you know, takes the time to have to write you a personal email about X, Y, or Z, and, you know, asks you a couple thought provoking questions that has a lot more impact and, and opportunity for learning than um, some very large bullet point in a newsletter. Um, that's somebody's or small bullet point in a large newsletter. That's what I was getting at that you may or may not read. Yeah, no, th- these, this is perfect. Personally, I have found, and I know COVID threw a monkey wrench in this for everybody, right? Like advocacy and outreach, being able just to like have that personal touch to like colleagues. But um, something that has helped me especially when I first started up my private practice in EI was I would deliver my evals with um, detailed observations and tie in the why, like, why am I requesting a consultation or a referral here? And I would deliver it to the nurses because if you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding, where she talks about the head of the household, the man may be the head of the house, but the wife is the neck and tells them which way to turn this. I have two sisters who are nurses. Well, technically one's a sister-in-law, but I am under the impression that the nurses are the ones that tell the doctors which way to turn their head. Even the dishwasher agrees. And so um, this is, this is um, interesting to me because what I found was if I did that and I brought in like a box of donuts or 
just something as like, hey, you know, I just picked up this really complex patient. Thank you so much for the referral. You know, here's my note. Here's my thank you donuts. But also, I have a worry. And I'm Southern. I'm. I mean, I've got. We all have cultural cultural phrases that we use. And my go to is, I got a worry on my heart about this little one. Um, maybe you and the doctor could look over this one piece, right? And that was that was helpful. Um, but y'all use the definition and the term the the four pillars to the definition of PFD to your advantage. So when you're doing your eval. If they don't come to you with a full diagnosis, and how many of us thought that when you pick up a kid from the NICU, they come with all of their diagnoses? I did. I now know that, wow, how wrong was I? But I for sure thought that. But when I'm doing my eval and I'm describing these signs and symptoms of patient presents with um, increase in emesis after um, you know, dairy intake or a rash or changes in bowel movements, please consider a referral too. If I can get that to the nurse and then follow it up with a phone call two days later, oftentimes it opens doors. But another way we can be proactive is how many of us have actually put in a call for paper for our state associations conventions of different professions? That's another way to like, we can, we can go to them share our knowledge, but lead time, leave time at the end for like an actual intimate conversation, right? Like build that into your call. And again, call for papers are presentations, not actual like literary papers, which I think is confusing, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, But those are ways that we can be change agents and allies and advocates for our patients. And I love implementation science. Um, one of my dear friends, Dr. Rebecca Wada, she's at, um, full-time faculty at Francis Marion University. Her degree is in implementation science. And like, oh my gosh, she is a smart cookie. This is, yeah, yeah. Becca, I love you. Please tell your sweet baby hi. She brought her baby over. He started walking at nine months old. What baby does that, right? An overachieving baby. Yeah, well, I mean, again, Becca's a smart cookie. <laughs> Okay. So then to like go back to our sweet, my sweet baby who thinks gravity is the greatest game ever, that the little one that I'm working with, like we're at that stage where we're like doing something and he picks it up and he investigates and then he throws it and he giggles when it like smashes on the ground. I think that gravity is always consistent. Good cause and effect there, right? Like, oh, if I throw it, it's going to make some good noise. Yes. Yes. And then I'm like object permanence. He now knows it disappeared, but like, yeah. That's funny. Um, <laughs> might be an SLP win. But with with his history, can you talk to us about like what have you seen change for like our little ones that have opioid exposure? Like walk walk me through your experiences there. And yeah. Yeah. So I um so it's interesting. I have a um a colleague, a very dear colleague, who has two children who were adopted. Um, who both had intrauterine um, exposures, including opioids. And I mean, I will go ahead and I'm pretty transparent about some of my challenges as a professional at times. It's just not something that was really on my radar. It's not something, and in my head, I was like, oh, you know, I know they have some feeding problems when they're little, but it gets better. And then they kind of like move on, you know, they go on. And and I was talking to her one time and, and we were actually problem solving some later um, executive functioning and language things and like how, you know, he didn't have the, her son didn't have the language 
you know, in a situation and where, and some things around behavior. And I was thinking back to some like, well, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? And I was talking to her and I, I literally said out loud, it was like this aha moment of, but that's assuming his brain is normal and going to learn things the way we've thought about them learning them normally. And she had commented to me another time and it, it, you know, kind of has continued to stick this, you know, kids who have a history of opioid exposure are so often misunderstood because they look typical. They don't have any distinguishing features that look like a chromosomal anomaly or even kids who've had um, alcohol exposure in utero. And so people go back to this. They just look like behavioral kids because everything else somewhat, you know, looks normal. And a lot of them don't have co-occurring medical diagnoses that you tend to think go along with, like in your example, you know, like they don't have a cardiac problem. They don't have these other pieces that would make you go, oh, there's something going on here. But what she said and what I have kind of adopted from her is, you know, this, their brains did not develop the way that we expect them to. You know, we think about, we don't let women who are pregnant or they're discouraged from taking ibuprofen or, you know, so many different medications while children are developing in utero because it could influence their development. And we we know it can influence their development. Well, we're talking about really strong, really potent drugs that have been shown to influence the development of the fetus in the womb. Mm-hmm. And yet we assume, oh, they're born, oh, the the symptoms of now's neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome or NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome, depending on where you are and what they're calling it, they're gone. So they must be, they must be fine, right? Like they're, they look, they're fine. Those, that withdrawal period is over. Some of these kids, we might not even know were exposed because, you know, you mentioned earlier state lines, not all states test all mothers yes. at birth. And so you will have some women who know which states are mandatory. I live in Ohio. Ohio is a mandatory testing state. Everyone who is pregnant, you are tested at two points along your pregnancy when you receive prenatal care. And then you are tested. And when you deliver, you and the infant are tested when you deliver. Um, But there are other states around me who are not mandatory testers. And so people will travel and they know where to go to not be. That's what I was told was that people know from South Carolina where to go to in um, North Carolina because it's not the same testing and that they can um, skirt it. Yeah. So kind of getting, you know, kind of what have I, so what have I seen? You know, I've seen somewhat of an acknowledgement that there's more, um, more of a risk. It's very interesting I mean, there's definitely more of a risk of cleft palate, and there's been some um, good work that's come out looking at that incidence's increase. Um, you know, around feeding and swallowing, there's there's not as much literature as I really would have expected um, in this population, but I'd say that's true for so many things, right? Like, I'm a researcher at heart. I want to go find the science to tell me what to do, but sometimes that science is is not there. There's some studies with them as infants looking at differences in sucking and swallowing. Um, I, you know, recently was talking about a couple of kids that I've worked with that had a history of exposure. Again, both pretty typical medical courses other than the exposures. Um, And they, so you know, these are two out of however many and they end up on my caseload. So your sample is very skewed. So I don't want everyone to think, you know, oh, this is a giant red flag. But I had two kids who were exposed in utero who were silently aspirating for 18 months of their life. 
and you're, you know, if you have a, a child who comes to you who looks otherwise very typical, and then they're silently aspirating, and they continue to silently aspirate, and they've been assessed for structural differences. They don't have, you know, laryngeal collapse. They don't have these pieces. They're just continuing to silently aspirate. They look like a kiddo who's had a neurological, some type of neurological condition. And and then it's like, well, duh. They did. They have a neurological condition. They have had a toxic exposure to their brain. If it was lead, you know, we talk about lead and we're trying to get lead pain away from kids because we know those are kids who are already developed eating it. Their brains are way significantly more developed than kids in utero. And so I think that's kind of where some of my thoughts and some of my hopefully future work and looking at like, how do we help people understand? Because then it's not just about it, at least from what I know of the literature and the kids I've worked with, it's not just about their feeding and their swallowing. It also then goes on to some challenges with executive functioning and some later language. And, um, you know, these kids are at risk for, um, they're going to be on our caseloads of speech pathologists for a long time. And so I think having a sense of the trajectory and helping families understand how to, how to help some of these children is really interesting. And a, a side note, and I'm, you can stop me if I just keep babbling, but one of the other things that's super interesting about kids with um, in utero exposure is that there's a group of these kids who go on to have what they call hyperphagia, or they, you know, they catch up in terms of growth because they're eating all the time. And I think it goes back to sensory regulation that we know that sucking and swallowing, you know, like that's what infants do to calm themselves. And sometimes you have caregivers who are in very precarious situations themselves, right? If you have a mother who's who's in active recovery and you have a baby that's crying, what's your go-to strategy when your baby is crying as a mother? It's to feed your child. And then the child learns, okay, this is going to make me feel better. This is going to make me feel better. And then they get to where they're in an agitated state again. And it, it might not be that they're hungry. It's that this is the problem solving And kudos to the mother in that, or the caregiver in that instance, right? Like they are responding to the needs of their child. Yes. And that's critical. But also thinking with some of these kiddos, how can we also help these families learn some other strategies to help the children and infants and toddlers regulate without having to give them a bottle to eat um, and, and kind of help maybe improve that regulation as they move towards, you know, toddler and preschool age too. I like how you say that as I'm sitting here eating carbs because I'm stressed about the syllabus I have to edit and tweak later. And so um, if that's not the quintessential stress eating, then like, I mean, but hyperphagia kind of sounds like stress. Everybody's like, I too eat carbs when I'm stressed. Absolutely. Okay. But then with that knowledge at hand, just thinking aloud, wouldn't that be Yes, they're responding with the tools that they are equipped with, but then we're setting that child on a learning pattern for um, not recognizing their true hunger cues and ignoring some of their interception, interceptional like red flags. The amount of like OTness that I hear in need for these patients and for how we can collaborate interprofessionally is profound because. Y'all, this is why we collaborate. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's fascinating. And I've seen that. Also, failure to thrive. I've had little ones with um, NAS that have 
been pushed through because they're fine. It's just, and I'm air quoting fine. Y'all can't see it. You know, they had the exposure, they're through it. But I've had a couple that also got a dual diagnosis of FTT, failure to thrive. I am going to give, I think failure to thrive is something's wrong. We just don't know what it is, but we're just going to label it this until we like really figure it out. I've had two where they did find holes in the heart later on that were way later identified, but then I'm going to circle it back to how reliable are our screenings for listening to cardiac conditions? Because how, when was the last time that pediatrician or those pediatricians involved in the newborn eval or in their care have had their hearing checked? How old is the stethoscope? What damage has occurred to that instrument that they're using? Because, I mean, once upon a time, I was taught cervical oscillation was the cat's meow for identifying aspiration, right? I know I saw that eyelid twitch. Folks, we are well aware cervical oscillation does not identify silent aspiration or aspiration for that matter, but like science changes. Oh my God. But like I legit slammed the door on my stethoscope. I was like, it's fine. (laughs) Like car door on my stethoscope. It's not fine. I have now compromised the integrity of that tool. But truthfully, what's, we don't, those are all uncounted variables. And if you're a researcher at heart, I can see your eyebrows like, oh my God, that's terrifying. But yeah, right. And I think the other piece of that in, in this particular context, depending on who the caregiver is, once the child is released from the hospital or is getting ready to go home, there is, I would say, I mean, there is a huge bias against caregivers who have a history of having substance use disorder. And, or there's a presumption of this is a a difficult family or, you know, this, like, they're not looking for those medical they're not, I shouldn't say this all the time. I think that there's the potential that they're not digging as deep into a true underlying medical diagnosis and particularly failure to thrive. Like we used to attribute that to the cold moms, right? Like, Oh, they're just not bonding with their baby and that's why they're not eating. So like, it's an easy out in those instances of like, Oh, well this child was exposed in utero and now they've had X, Y, and Z in their, in their social, you know, situation and caregivers and identifying. And, and part of me wants to stand up and say, and that's why this baby to have a good chance moving forward needs even more of your time and your attention and you're willing to solve the problem as to what is going on and not just call it a breakdown in the relationship between the caregiver and the child or they're just they're just they're, no if they are not eating and they're that young something is going on figure it out and don't just these are also you know particularly if they are the biological parents who A, are going through their own stuff in terms of recovery with substance use and dealing with, you know, some of the the feelings that they have. And there's a couple of books out there about women in recovery and from a very, you know, mothers in recovery and from a variety of substances, not just opioids. But it's interesting that it's similar in some ways to some of the emotions that we talk about in caregivers of children with communication disorders in general. But the, the emotion that comes through that's not in other things that we talk about is guilt. And knowing that they have played a role in, you know, potentially played a role in some of the challenges that they're that they're having is a very difficult emotion for the caregivers to have. It's a difficult emotion for them to acknowledge. And so, you know, they may not have the 
fortitude or the strength at that moment to really push forward and say, no, there's something really wrong with my baby. Please do something because they're balancing their own mental challenges around what happened here. Did I contribute to it? Did I not contribute to it? I'm trying to, you know, if it, you know, sometimes these things happen not from using street drugs, but these are women who are in active recovery, getting medication, working a recovery program, and they've got their own things they're dealing with. And so again, it's an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity for us as professionals to say, look, this is a baby who was exposed to X, Y, or Z toxin in utero. You'd be looking for all these different things just because it's opioids, just because it's methadone. There's something different here, please. Like it's our chance to advocate and really help that child and help that that caregiver believe in us, not as a system who's trying to harm that relationship, but who's trying to help that relationship as well. Yes. I'm trying to figure out where to assign this episode in the syllabus right now, because this is so perfect. But like, this gets back to us taking into a lot of these little ones that we're going to work with are going to fall into early intervention. And this is why we have to have a firm grasp of understanding that early intervention is focused and centered around caregiver coaching. It is not bag of tricks therapy. It is not us going in and doing direct service delivery that's going to make a hill of beans difference for this child. If you have a child that has a cleft and you're working on pacing, or if if they are silent aspirators and you have to ensure that they're like properly thickening because that's the only outcome that was viable um, on an instrumental swallow study, right? Or again, fed is fed is fed, whether that be bottle breast or combinations of um, tubes. But okay, so I'm just going to put this in the universe. I would love, I would love for CAPSID, the Council of Academic Programs for Speech Pathology and Communication Sciences, I would love that we split dysphagia into two required classes one for adults, one for pediatrics. And then I would love there be a designated required course on best practice for early intervention, not just like early childhood language, but like truthfully, like a six week, I'm just putting this in the universe. So it's documented. Okay. So universe, please, please conspire to make these joyful things happen. I think that, so one thing though, to think about like the whole caregiver coaching and I think if that skill set, if we can, if we can master that skill set, that's not just applicable to early intervention and what we do. That's to how we work through a situation with a preschool teacher, or this is how we talk to the intervention specialist, or you know, for adults, it's a caregiver who's going home and thickening the liquids or modifying the texture for an adult, and so it, it really plays into some of that, um, the counseling skills, but it's not just counseling, it's counseling plus coaching and it's across the lifespan. And that's, it's a critical skill. Like we know we will never permanently change behavior just on the 20 minutes a week that we get with a child or the 40 minutes a week. And I think the other piece of that is it's coaching them how to help that, how to help their child, but it's empowering the parent to be the advocate for the child for the remainder of their days. You know, like you go to an IEP meeting and you have a parent who's super passionate and, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, whew, keeping me on my toes, going to make me work a little bit harder. But that nobody will ever advocate for a child harder than their parent will if their parent has been empowered to do that. And that's, 
I think we just have to remember those things. And yes, I am a, a student of David Luterman. Let's go back 22 years again, you know, counseling for communication disorders. That was the crux of my graduate training program, like learning from him about how do we empower families. Um, you know, he worked with kids who were hearing impaired, different population, but same principles that have really kind of driven some of my passion around, like you were saying, like caregivers and and coaching and empowering them because they are the people who make the difference for their children. Okay. So I had to pull it up on the Google. SIG 20 is the new counseling special interest group from ASHA. That's, that's, yes, that's so folks, if you're listening and you want direct resources on how to engage and grow your counseling skills um, across the life continuum, because there's plenty of folks that are pediatrics, PRN early intervention, but they may have like a full-time gig working somewhere else, especially with adults. Like this is, that would be a viable resource to go to is to check out the SIGs. Also, I, I'm biased. Sometimes when I read the fancy journal articles, I don't understand because they're too hard for my like clinician brain to interpret into practice. But like the SIG articles are more clinical research-based. I feel like that's a better analogy and I can read it. I'm like, oh, I can do that next Tuesday with this patient. And so, all right, can I, can we tiptoe into the uncomfortable waters that are um, treatment approaches? <laughs> yes, we can tiptoe on a cold day at the beach. So, they- <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, people come to ASHA Boston 2023 for the PFD track. I've got it on good authority, seeing as how I'm volunteer topic chair that like we're going to have really in-depth presentations on current evidence-based practice. Um, no, no vibrating tools required, but um, <laughs> I'll behave. It is my birthday episode. So we have to go there a little. Yes. Yes. So what have for these little ones? I mean, not necessarily just our little ones that have had opioid exposure, like predicated on the fact that we are supposed to do the coaching, but where have you seen treatments start and move to in, in your time? And what would you like to see it go like further? You know what I mean? Is that a good tiptoe? Yeah, that's a, that's a good tiptoe. I would say this is more driven by my observations of clinical practice than actual like published evidence, but I feel like we have come to a much more, um, respectful place of children in terms of what we are. So it's not coaching the caregivers, but I feel like we are helping to guide children to explore and to do things versus us doing things to them with the hope that it is going to result in some type of of change. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the behavioral treatments and the behavioral approaches and the just hide one food and another and, and have them, you know, eat it and, and totally breaking the trust that we had. Um, I think we've come to understand the importance of activities that are consistent with what we out, want the outcome to be versus activities that are purely isolated on their own. And you mentioned before, you know, non-speech oral motor exercises or, you know, oral motor exercises that really didn't tie to some function that we were trying to achieve um, in children. And so, you know, I think those are, those are some of the places that we've, we've been able to come. It's been nice to see also around, you know, thinking about weaning protocols and, and thinning protocols and starting to get a little bit of evidence um, 
that's published out there about how people are doing it and things that are successful. I think those are my big thoughts on my tiptoeing. I don't know. I guess I'm not very going maybe as deep as you want me to, but I'm a little afraid of sharks. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the tomatoes. Um, Yes. Okay. So folks, we've had guests on over the course of the life of the podcast talking about like current research and current practices. Um, I volley you back to um, the two episodes with Dr. Georgia Melandrecki on um, her research um, at the Purdue I Eats Lab. Also, please follow them on Instagram. Um, Dr. Almost Dr. Rachel Arkenberg, um, who is one of her PhD students, talking about um, motor planning for um, and why we're supposed to be teaching. First and foremost, if you learn a skill in isolation, and you don't tie it into the action. There's no carryover. And that's literally just the way our brains are hardwired. So if you learn a mastication skill up and down on something that is of increasing tensile strength or like hardness, but yet you don't learn how to control the bolus that would theoretically come off of that hard object, then you're not setting that individual up for success for the actual act right? Yeah. That's where we have a disconnect. Also, um, if we listen to the neurodiverse voices that um, are in our communities, um, if we sit back and actually listen to them, to the recipients of the treatments from the ABA world and from the autism world, um, we will hear that they're voicing cries of concern and trauma that was inflicted upon them because well-meaning clinicians, not just SLPs, but well-meaning individuals were taught that we take away the autonomy and have the child do as we want them to do, right? However, that takes away their autonomy. And some voices are even going so far as to say that opens them up for being um, not able to say no in predatory situations, right? And that's scary. But if we don't listen to what the child or toddler or infant is saying with their, as you said earlier, with their nonverbals, with their pragmatics, with their reading of the room, and we override that, then they're not getting to say, I have a problem. I, something is wrong, right? So on that note, I would highly recommend um, that there are um, a couple of certifications. There's some advanced coursework that our dear friend Aaron Forward has, um, TBRI Trained Practitioner. Um, It's a trauma-informed care practitioner. But to circle back around to what we were talking about earlier with like our caregivers that are opioid, our caregivers that are battling their own personal traumas, we there's not just trauma for the child, but there's trauma for the caregivers. I mean have a little one in the NICU. That's a traumatic experience. My bear was in the NICU. I still deal with that, right? Um, He's eight. When he gets excited, he still rolls his R's. And I'm like, couldn't hear for a couple years, had a lot of surgeries, but like, I feel the mom guilt that I couldn't carry him to term. I mean, we didn't know that my body was like, yeah, let's kill Michelle. So like, you know, it's fine. We all survived, trauma included for free. Um, But that is an excellent course. Also the DIR floor time training, and there's different levels of training within there. It teaches you how to work with our neurodiverse population. And I'm going to go so far as to say, if you have a patient on your caseload, 
who has a PMH, a past medical history of ETOH and NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome. There was another term that you were used. Now it's neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Yes. But if they have that, then they are going to be neurodiverse. Their brain had a toxic exposure. They may not have a, a comorbidity of autism spectrum disorder or an intellectual disability, um, but they're neurodiverse at their core, right? So why not equip yourself with um, skills to learn how to set them for success from a child-led intervention, right? So there's options, right? But like what I find interesting is that when we're looking at best practice for PFD, we have to get out of just SLP literature. I hear a lot of times people say, oh, well, I'm just treating the sensory part of his feeding disorder, or I'm just treating the behavior part of the feeding disorder, to which I'm going to pose the question, how are you intervening if we don't have the baseline medical etiology pegged and we haven't gotten that child to a point of healing? Because you can treat the surface, but you're always going to be doing a patch job if you haven't gotten them healed. And we can't heal as a silo practitioner. That's where we pull in allergy, GI, psychology, ENT, all of that. So the analogy that I've used sometimes um, in thinking about that is as a speech therapist, would you ever work on speech sound disorder without assessing hearing, knowing that they're hearing and making sure that they're able to hear what, what you're saying, modeling, doing and the feedback you're giving? Because we know that if we continue to do that, we're not really making you know, we're working against ourselves. Like we're not, we're not really setting anybody up for success. And and you mentioned something earlier too. And I, um, I wanted to go back to it. You were talking about, you know, making things functional and activities functional. One of the things that we have to think about is the efficiency of the time that we have. Yeah. If we're not addressing something in the maximally function way, maximally functional way, somebody can be successful, we are not being good stewards of the time and energy and financial resources that we've been given. And so, you know, I just, you said that, and I meant to mention that, but kind of going back to that, you know, same thing with like, what are we doing here? Like, we need to know what's going on and understand so that we are helping somebody in the best, most efficient way, and not just doing something to them. So we can say we did something and move on. And bill for it for productivity. Yeah. That was my dramatic um, gut punch, guys. I'm not sure if y'all could see my face. <laughs> you should get some sound effects. You can like the radio DJ. You can drop in there, here and there. Bear has perfected the fart on command. And I was like, Bubby, you're going to shart yourself one day. And he was like, what is that? I was like, it's when you have a poo streak in your drawers. And, and Goose is like, but poo wouldn't be the, oh, oh, mom, you can't say that. And I was like. Ah, they're getting old enough that they're getting these inappropriate jokes that like were like not they were like a not no no brainer a couple years ago like oh yeah sound effects yes okay oh my gosh okay we only have like a skinny minute left where where do you think where do you foresee Pete's dysphagia going where would you like to see research and research to practice and back and forth go in the next like couple years. I, that's a, that's a, that's like a diving over the deep end without a life jacket. Well, manifest, call it manifesting. (laughs) Yes. Yes. One of the things that I think would be very beneficial for us as a field and as we work with caregivers is to start to have like in an ideal dream world, this probably isn't going to happen in the next couple of years, but maybe a long time moving forward. 
I think one of the questions that's really hard for families is how long is this going to take or what, what exactly do we need to be doing? And we just don't have the evidence to really be able in most instances to give a family any type of prediction based on anything other than our clinical gut, which isn't inherently a very scientifically solid base necessarily. And I I think with having PFD and being able to pick up different pieces of the diagnosis and, and maybe get a little more kind of in the weeds about who we're treating, I would love pie in the sky to start being able to look at interventions and look at for this group of children, this intervention works the best. Or for this group of children, these two things seem to go together well. So almost like like some type of like long-term comparative effectiveness, which again, probably not two or three years away, probably even a little bit more in the future. But starting to have more answers for families for in this group of kids, we know that X, Y, and Z works. And it often takes A, B, or C amount of time. We're not saying always that that's what it's going to be, but to to have something to go by. So when they say to you, is he going to be able to go to kindergarten without this tube in his stomach? We can start to have some basis on which to start making some, having some of those discussions with families that are based in science and not just our, our clinical experience. I love that. The National Down Syndrome Society has a chart on their website that has typical developmental skills, everything from like rolling over, crawling, first words, two word combos, independent self-dressing, independent self-feeding skills, and then a trajectory for individuals that have Down syndrome. Um, And I love that because it's that, you know, took a lifetime to create, but so we'll manifest it in the 10 year life plan. Beautiful. I like that. Okay, so we're going to go slightly over, but I have it on good authority that you're in a a new setting doing a cool new thing and that if people want to learn from you, they can do that. So can you like talk ever so briefly about this new life adventure? Yeah. So I'm the department chair and program director for a new developing speech language pathology program at Mount St. Joseph that you mentioned earlier um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. So we have a new graduate program. We're going through um, the accreditation or the candidacy process at this point, which you can find more information and official language about on our webpage. Um, but we, yeah, it's been a great, um, really interesting experience. Like we were talking earlier about, you know, grad school classes and pediatric feeding and swallowing. I'm super fortunate to be in a great interprofessional department. We have, um, you, you know, we have neonatal uh, simulators and pediatric simulators and we're building the program to be able to really incorporate some of that neonatal feeding um, into what we're doing. And I'm, I'm super excited about that piece, but also um, the fact that we're at a very um, mission-driven, service-driven institution. And so I'm very fortunate to be a part of something that's really going to be able to give back. You know, kind of our goal for our students is not just to, not just to acquire the knowledge and skills, obviously, to be, to be good clinicians, but to be able to make a meaningful difference in their community with their patients and in our profession. Yes. Okay. So, and y'all are, y'all are accepting students now, right? We, our application cycle is open. Yes. So since a beautiful campus right on the river in Ohio, um, you know, it's kind of a, almost like a suburban feel to the campus, but with world-class um, facilities here in Cincinnati. So very excited about it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, anybody interested in pediatric feeding, swallowing, it's just a great, 
come with me because you can you could tell my ex- excitement and passion and um, building building that training into our curriculum has definitely been um, something that's important to us too. Yes. Okay. So there it is, folks. Oh my God. I am so excited to see the amazingness that you're going to create and establish and uh, congratulations. Godspeed, friend. (laughs) (laughs) May the coffee be strong and on Friday nights, the wine stronger. How about that? (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Okay, folks, if you're listening, thank you for joining us for, um, oh my God, this is so cool. I've had like two weeks back to back of like mentors, like on, this is a way to ring in 40. So um, we love it when you join us on First Bite Podcast on Instagram. Um, We love it when you leave joyful reviews on um, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders um, on the Amazon, as the boys call it, um, as well as when you leave review of the podcast on Apple podcast. So thank you. Thank you for being part of this journey. And if you want to celebrate Michelle turning 40, I am asking that you tithe of your time, your talent, or as grandma Wood would say, um, a little bit of your love money to um, feeding matters. So go to feeding matters and tell them um, Michelle and Aaron and Aaron sent you. Huh? That's funny. Cause I always say Michelle and Aaron, but now there's two Aaron's today. Huzzah. Thank you. Thank you. The Dr. Aaron. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA 
and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Mm -hmm.